0: All right, well, I am here today with a good friend of mine, Jared Ware, aka Jay Beware, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Jay is a writer, an organizer, um, a great person who should follow on Twitter and read their writing. As, as a journalist, Jay's work often deals with incarcerated people and their struggles. Um, so we really wanted to just come on today and have a conversation. Um, about prison abolition, but really what it means to be an abolitionist organizer and what it means to live kind of an abolitionist life materially beyond just the kind of abstract idea of abolition. And then we wanted to give you an update and discussion from Jay on the August 21st, 21st prison strike. So we also thought that because we both, this is a topic we both are very passionate about, that we would just share this episode and kind of cross-promote it between the two of our podcasts, um, which is Millennials Are Killing Capitalism and The Groundings Podcast. Um, So, Jay, anything you want to add to that?
1: No, I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, I've been uh, looking forward to it. Uh, We've been looking forward to having you back on. And, you know, it's definitely, I think, obviously it's a, current topic that people are very interested in right now due to the strike, but also due to, like, all of the movement around um, ICE abolition that's been going on. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's definitely relevant and um, something that people are interested in. And it's also something that we haven't really covered over at Millennials Are Killing Capitalism yet because... I do also work with Beyond Prisons and we like to give them their space. They do great work there. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian and, and Kim, Brian Funenstein and Kim Wilson. So, um, but, you know, I think it's like, it's it's an important um, politic and praxis that for me and for you too, I know. And um, I think that it's, you know, it's an important piece to continue and to keep into the conversation when we're talking about, you know, radical politics socialist politics, et cetera.
0: Yeah, definitely. I And I think that one of the angles me and you discussed earlier that we wanted to make sure people grasp is pulling the conversation of abolition a little bit away from the abstracts and the futurity of, of the politic and of the theory and really speaking about what it looks like materially. Um, With this conversation, like you said, about, quote, unquote, abolish ICE and the prison strike, you know, being really dominating mainstream discourse right now. I think a lot of people are missing out on the aspect of what does it actually mean and what is the actual work that goes into it? Um, And the Beyond Prisons podcast is always a great source of sort of, to me, taking it from that strictly abstract place it always exists in and putting it into this material praxis um on the field definitely yeah
1: um they do a great job of that they've had a lot of good guests on including yourself um to talk about that and um you know i think that i agree i mean a lot of times when we do these interviews um we're explaining to people what prison abolition is and i think we should spend a moment to sort of explain what that is um but i think that a lot of times because it is it is a, you know, it is somewhere far off, but hopefully not too far off, right? It is, it's a mm-hmm. horizon, right? Um, and I think with that, one of the conversations I was having with a friend recently was like, when you're not in it immediately, right, you can sort of have this notion that um, that there's sort of slow work around it, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that it's not urgent, right? Or that it's not, something that um you need to be actively participating in even if it's not um immediate um, and there's a there's a super, you know one of the things i think is hard to talk about abolition a little bit is that there's a very wide range of what people who identify as prison abolitionists and what how they look at their practice you know um you can have people that are like very insurrectionary within the movement but you also have people um that are doing like restorative or transformative justice work within their communities um and then sometimes you have people that are like you know kind of both of those things or in the middle <laughs> um mm-hmm. so you know it's it's a it's a broad range um and so you know I think each of us have our own specific histories with it um and I think that a lot of times you know in in the sort of general conversations we don't get down to Um, some of the specifics of our own, you know, our own histories with it and our own things that we've been a part of. So, you know, uh, Dev, I I guess the first thing I would want to ask you is, is how do you define prison abolition or think about it? Um, And then we can talk about some of the things that you've been connected in with it.
0: Yeah. um, I think abolition is like the radical notion that slavery and people being in cages should no longer exist. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's weird that in, in the year 2018, this is considered a radical thought or some kind of like extremist thought that that slavery should not exist, um, that, that forced labor and exploited prison, prisoner incarcerated labor should no longer exist and that prison shouldn't exist, but it, that's exactly how I would define abolition. I think that, in a more practical sense, though, it's the theory and praxis of creating and working towards a world without prisons um, and without jails, essentially, and without the the prison industrial complex as as we even as we even know it today, right? The entire prison system. Um, and that looks a number of different ways. and there's a lot of different fights that take place on that front. There's the fight to end cash bail there's the fight to end pretrial detention, there's the, the fight to end immigrant detention in jails, there's decarceration struggles, um, which are long protracted struggles to free people, uh, say, in Colorado, where marijuana is now legal, to free people who are in jail and who have been in prison um, for something that's now legal. And Really, it's the work of getting to the social and economic roots of of, in, of the inequalities that cause people to, to fill prisons in the first place. Um, so in a lot of ways, the work of abolition is working backwards. If we want to know why someone is, quote unquote, in prison, we have to look at the system and why the system is in place and why only a certain kind of people typically fall entrapped into that system in the first place. So... Abolition and prison abolition specifically is is this h- kind of huge idea and huge thought. when you really break it down, it's honestly just common sense to me. Um, right. If you ask yourself the question, "Who are prisons for?" the answer is always a bad answer, right? Like prisons, your your answer is going to be, mm-hmm. "Who are prisons for?" Well, they're for rich people. They're for the capitalist. Or they're for white people. Or they're for hiding, you know, social ills of a society. So so I think that abolition is just the work of deconstructing the prison system and working towards a decarcerated so society.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um you know, so I guess um, you know, the next thing to talk about is what are some of the ways that you've um you've done work that you've seen in an abolitionist lens, um, and and some of the, you know, some of your comrades that you've been around, some of the people that you've worked with or um, know mm-hmm. really well um, have been engaged in this work.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things that I've been involved in, and I've had the, or I've, I guess I say have the the pleasure and, like, the, the blessing of having been involved in and, and having witnessed that my friends are doing all across the country. I know that one thing is, A lot of people tend to disconnect police abolition from prison abolition, as if one can't happen without the other.
1: Um, Yeah, that's silly.
0: (laughs) So I think, you know, there's this weird thing happening right now where abolishing the police and disarming the police is almost seen as, like, less... um, less possible and let and makes less sense to people than abolishing prisons when in reality you have to do one or the other you don't have to do one or the other you have to do both and i i think that working um so there's a there was a young man named anthony hill who was shot and killed in atlanta georgia while he was having a ptsd episode um he was completely naked he stood about five foot seven black man and the officer officer robert olson who shot him was the first responder on the call? He shot him twice in the chest within, I believe, within two minutes of arriving. Who was six foot four, a white man, um, and that sparked this huge movement in Atlanta in 2015 to to call for mental health response units. Um, so these would essentially be response units that would that would respond to mental health crises. Um, that would arrive without a police. It would be mental health professionals, so it would be counselors, psychiatrists, therapists, who would arrive on the call to handle the situation. Um, but in doing that, we actually kind of created through a group called rise Up um, this entire like research started started blooming from that, and these initiatives popped up. And we realized through this research and through our study that about 50% who are incarcerated. Have some kind of confirmed and diagnosed mental illness, and along with that, a rough, roughly 40 uh-huh. to 50 percent of people who are victims of police violence, as well, have mental illness. So, so my my start um, in abolitionist organizing and really material organizing for abolition, right, started with this push to to have officers not be the first responders to mental health crises. Um, and it, and it really, by doing that one thing, it kind of is like un, un, unraveling and pulling back layers of, yeah. of the prison industrial complex, because you can't look at mental illness and police violence without looking at mental illness and arrest rates and incarceration rates. Um, yep. so we've made really great progress on that in Atlanta over the past four year, three to four years. Um, and different counties are, are actually, I believe, in 2019 going to be piloting um, some mental health response units. So, so that was kind of the first thing. Um, another thing that's really huge right now in the city of Atlanta is the push to close Atlanta City Detention Center. And again, this is something that especially liberals hear and they think, well, what are we going to do if we close a jail? Where are all those people going to go? Um, this is the work of abolition, right? It's to create pathways and methods of decarceration. If there's no jail there and there's no incentive to fill a jail, you're going to see less arrests and it's going to reverberate back to less crime because you're eliminating a social inequality. Um, So there's a really good group called Women on the Rise in Atlanta that's ran by mostly women of color, but um, some white women too. It's ran by women who are all formerly incarcerated, um, both trans women and cis women, black and brown women. And through their work, along with a group called Project South, they have made huge, huge, huge strides in getting Atlanta City Attention Center shut down. The first kind of major Uh, I guess push in in the right direction was when we through investigative journalism found out that the Atlanta State Attention Center was actually getting paid um, per day per head for each detained immigrant Mm -hmm. that's there. And this was making them essentially millions, essentially they were making millions of dollars a year being paid by ICE and DHS to house detained immigrants. Um, it was kind of swept under the rug and kept quiet for many years and once that information leaked we we found that to be a really good entry point i guess to access you know where to target this prison or the jail first and foremost um and then beyond that the group worked extensively with incarcerated people who had previously been at atlanta city jail who were who are currently there to not only have them share their stories of the abuses they faced there and the completely just horrible, inhumane um, environment, but to also help meet the material needs of people who were who are engaged there. So by doing all of these different things, um, the public awareness in Atlanta right now about Atlanta City Jail is almost at an all-time high. And several lawyers and and activists like Azadeh Shahshahani, for example, who I love and I'm such a huge fan of, have had meetings with um, Atlanta City Council and people in Atlanta who have a lot of power to actually shut down a jail. And it honestly seems like by the year 2021, Atlanta City Jail will be shut down. Several of the people will be free. Um, And I believe that by the end of 2019 if I'm not mistaken it looks like they're gonna also pass a bill ending cash bail in the city of Atlanta which will be a huge mm-hmm, win yeah so so essentially okay. I guess what I'm saying is all of these small actions right that we do through an abolitionist lens to, to untangle and unravel just this one jail it reverberates into much bigger you know uh, results that are that are the result of abolitionist organizing.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, absolutely. You know, I think for myself, I also, um, you know, I think about the areas of abolition that I focus on. And, you know, more than anything, for me, it is about deconstructing ideas. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about, you know, really understanding that, you know, and so Fred Moten and Stephan O'Harney have a book called the Undercommon um, and one of the things that they discuss in it um, in one of the chapters, which is basically about the university um, mm-hmm. is this notion, and I don't think it's unique to their work. I think other scholars have touched on it in different ways, but um, this notion that the the idea of um, schools not prisons might seem like a really great idea, except that our schools are creating the prison, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the the notion that not in multiple ways, right? So, you know, we know about the school to prison pipeline and, you know, the way that harsh punishment in schools and all of these other things impact um, the way that, you know, third grade reading scores have historically been used to you know, project how many beds that they need in prison.
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: but but beyond that, what does public administration teach students in college, right? It, it right. teaches them how to administer this racist, capitalist, you know, uh municipality, basically, or um or county, you know, and within that you're not allowed to question the institutions of that <laughs> you know right. and so you you train people basically in you know these these structures that we have within society that you know when someone commits crime and crime is a very specific legal thing then you know they go to prison and they serve their sentence there and this is a part of how you administer the public, you know, the commons, basically, in the, in in America, you know, but it's broad, you know. I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? Because of you the, you know, U.S. imperialism, years of colonialism, but at the same time, like, you know, I always look for these interesting little nuggets. There was a quote I saw from an article like a couple weeks ago that was noting that the first prison in Kenya was built in Nairobi in like 1911. You know, and so mm-hmm. the article was written by, you know, an African journalist, and they were noting that, um, you know, that, that, like, prisons were not a, uh, they were not an African tradition, right, in general, like, that wasn't mm-hmm. how they dealt with harm within their society. Um, You know, obviously, there's a ton of different African, you know, states, countries, there's a whole it's a whole continent. Right. But but, you know, speaking from the Kenyan lens there, you know, they were saying that systems of restitution and redress and, you know, but like that was more how it was dealt with. Right. It's like, how do you if there's a harm committed, how do you repair the harm? How do you hold the person accountable who has, you know, victimized or harmed someone um, to that? Right, um, but you know it's like we we loo- we because of u s hegemony and we have the largest prison system in world history um it's for so many people it's just like we just accept it at at face value without ever questioning you know where this idea comes from, how old is this idea, what other ways have people dealt with that, with this realm human history some some very bad too, right, but like um. But, you know, it's bound up in all of these, these things, and particularly, of course, in the U.S., bound up in, in white supremacy and in settler colonialism, you know, as well as capitalism.
0: So mm-hmm. all
1: of those. all of Yeah, I mean,
0: together. you know, I think that what you just said made me think of two things, and it's really important. I, you know, well, you know, I'm personally not the biggest Fred Moten fan, but I think that yeah, it's I a, his attention <laughs> to... <laughs> his attention to analyzing civil society just as a whole right is mm-hmm. so important because we haven't really had someone to do it and and really do this like sweeping view of civil society um since to me antonio Gramsci. but i mm-hmm. i think that one of the one of the things that i do and i i like is really important to me as I speak with and help actual incarcerated people, right? I don't keep all of my mm-hmm. practice just outside of the prison. I actually want to help the people who are affected. So I speak with detained immigrants who are at Stewart Detention Center in Atlanta and Atlanta City Jail. Um, to one, just to help them, often they need uh, to contact someone on the outside, they need to contact a lawyer or a family member or they need you to help them raise money so they can buy food and and pay for phone calls and emails and these things. Um, Or if there's some kind of abuse going on on the inside, if they don't have anyone on the outside to speak to about it, or if the person on the outside that they're speaking to doesn't know how to contact the media, for example, you know, that abuse will generally continue happening. Um, And three, it's because I can hear from them, what are you, you know, they'll tell stories of how they got there, quote unquote. And they'll say, like, I was from a poor neighborhood and the police were always in my neighborhood looking for us to do something wrong and stuff like, you know, they tell these really anecdotal but powerful stories that right. are honestly critiques of civil society. Um, oh. And I think that's so important and powerful and why I always encourage people to to join a prison pen pal group, because if you're not actually speaking with the people who are impacted by the structure you're trying to challenge and you you just look you look stupid and you don't actually know what you're trying to combat at all um and then the second thing your comment made me me think of is the work that needs to be done is abolition it's being done but needs to be done on a larger scale we have to look at it in like a global context right Mm -hmm. um we have to look at abolition through the lens of Palestine, which is like the world's largest open air prison, as Mumia yep. Abu Jamal, political prisoner, described it. Um, and we have to look at the prison system as an extension of of imperialism, even inside mm-hmm. the U.S. So I'm yep. thinking of like Freetown Central P- Prison, um, which is also known as Pamimda Prison in Sierra Leone, is like it holds thousands of prisoners and it's known as one of the worst prisons on earth and all of that. I think it's interesting when the Western media labels a prison in another country as the worst prison on earth or this horrible conditions because they will never do yeah. that for, for like Angola prison in Louisiana. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but, um, but it was, it was built by British colonists and colonizers in 1914 in Sierra Leone. Right. So this prison that y'all are, y'all are decrying as like the worst prison on earth and all that was actually an extension of an imperialist agenda and was built by the British the Mm -hmm. the prisons that are here in the US and are built in the US are still we're still on a settler ground right like these are still being built by settlers on foreign land on stolen land so so it's still an extension of of imperialism in Palestine in the part of Palestine known as Israel for some reason, um some of the some of the jails are constructed with like u s. materials that are imported in yeah. in the u k, they're building a new prison in Jamaica, a multimillion dollar prison in my home country of Jamaica, but it's being built in coordination with u s um, with u s. contractors and u s. quote unquote yeah. prison specialists, right? so Again, the work of prison abolition has to be material because we have to be researching and studying and bringing these kind of international and local connections to light. Um, Absolutely. and 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 working with detained immigrants who are from other countries, which is like the bread and butter of what I love to do, is is um is super eye-opening. One of my friends, Amadou, who's from Ghana. He, well, he sends me videos all the time of police brutality in Ghana, but his, the comment he always says is, doesn't this look like the U.S.? Doesn't this feel like the U.S.? Oh my God, I feel like I'm back in the U.S. And, and, you know, this is someone who doesn't have the most political analysis, but can clearly just visibly observe and see the connections of a prison state globally. Um, Right. So, yeah, that was my rant on that, but
1: <laughs> No, I mean, that's very valid. I mean, Angela Davis's most recent book, Freedom as a Constant Struggle, really kind of mm-hmm.
0: works on that
1: idea too. Um, and I I do think there's this really interesting thing, not interesting in a good way, but interesting in like this sort of horrifying way. Um that when you look at also settler settler colonies, you know, countries that that have that as their sort of historical, you know, whatever as the uh, ones that are still in existence, you know, and also the, the countries. So if you look at the UK and the places that, you know, were sort of original colonies of the UK, um, you know, a lot of times you find the most just barbaric, you know, systems of imprisonment, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I know that like, it, I mean, Australia, of course, the origin was as it was a settler colony, but it was also a penal colony, you know, yep. um, and then um you know the U.S. certainly I mean even Ireland's history you know as as being colonized by the British you know so there's there's a lot of um you know there's a lot of history you know obviously Palestine of course from the river to the sea um yeah but you know it's um and then and in Africa of course too like people don't like to talk about for you know stupid white reasons probably but um, about countries within Africa as settler colonies, but, you know, of course, a lot of them were, or, you know, obviously it's, it's complicated now because you've had some sort of decolonization, some neo-colonialism, you know, all of that, but like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, they're like Rhodesia, right, was a settler colony, you know,
0: yep. um,
1: so it's, it's in South Africa, you know. Um, yeah,
0: and I, I think, you know you said earlier that the the idea of prisons is not native to the African continent and as Mm -hmm. as someone you know who went through the African studies um, academic bullshit I can 100% say that's that's true right like if you look at the vast majority of indigenous African religions for example there's no concept of irredeemable bad right like that was a colonial import and you can't have Mm -hmm. a prison Without the concept of irredeemable evil and irredeemable bad or irredeemable sin that's embedded right. into the prison system and how people speak of prisons and people who get out of prison is that you've done something irredeemable that has to be on your life and marked forever um, this is a yeah. direct colonial import it's a direct imperialist import and if we talk about dismantling this we have to talk about we have to talk about broadening our horizon beyond just the. US prison system and beyond reform. Um, you know, we can't all Definitely. be – I can't wear a blue vest and talk about reform and feel like I've done anything good in the world when I know that the prison industrial complex we have today is a direct result of those reforms. So right. that was my shade Absolutely. of the episode.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it is. I mean, obviously, you know, that's also – that's also something I credit to Angela Davis is really that that mm-hmm. talking through that history of the prison as reform, right? Um, even though, I'm, you know, it's, it's just historical facts, but she definitely describes that really well in Our Prisons Obsolete. Um, but does. this also connects into, you know, I do want to talk and we can get back to other pieces too, but um, I do want to talk about the prison strike that's coming. And I think, you know, you hit on several things there in terms of, the irredeemable bad, you know, particularly Um, when I think of what is motivating this particular strike, um, I would say that the prisoners are rebelling against the notion of the irredeemable bad, you know, because, well, let me, let me ask
0: you to, for the, just for the listeners, can you actually give the context to where this the August 21st prison strike, what it is in response to and the context of yep. how it's kind of arising?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, it comes in a movement that is not new, of course. Um, you know, as long as there have been prisons, this is like as long as there was slavery, right? People rebel against this institution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly we have a history of some fairly significant prison rebellions in the United States, including of course Attica which is often referenced and is sort of you know I think in many ways one of the most famous and is 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 interestingly i mean because George Jackson is such an important figure to prisoners in America uh, particularly mm-hmm. black prisoners in America um, but just also in terms of his notions of solidarity because George Jackson was somebody who you know, was willing to work radically um, in solidarity with other prisoners across racial divisions and everything else. But, you know, those two moments are very central. And so the dates actually line up with the date of the death of the 47th anniversary of the death of George Jackson and the 47th anniversary of the Attica Rebellion is the window of 20 days, which they're saying they want to do this. But what it's directly in response to Um, actually is so what I would say is that they were going to have a prison strike at some point um, Mm -hmm. because they had one in 2016 Um, there was the Millions for prisoners human rights March last year and these are all just sort of pieces of a growing movement inside Um, and so it was a matter of time but earlier in the year you know, and this is public knowledge to the people who know it is public information, at least, is that jailhouse lawyers speak and other prison uh, advocacy organizations inside, into all like inside organizations, had decided not to have a prison strike this year um, because they didn't think that the outside was ready with enough support. Um, and they didn't think that it was there was enough time to organize everything inside that they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um but what happened on April 15th is um there was the deadliest uh, incident of prison violence it's it's hard to talk about in typical terms because it wasn't really a riot and it wasn't really an uprising what it basically was was you know a manifestation of violence between prisoners um that was aided and you know per jailhouse lawyer speaks analysis of it really created by the conditions of um the people who run the prisons you know mm. um so but they look at it from both lenses right they they acknowledge i think within it that the people the prison officials did certain things in terms of pulling out prisoners from that prison that um were able to foster more unity and solidarity among the different gangs there and putting into that prison prisoners that the, that the officials knew had beefs with other rival gangs within the prison, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they, so they, they placed that responsibility at the state, which I think is fair for sure. Um, but they also um, do acknowledge that it was also a manifestation by the prisoners that, that their heads weren't in the right place in terms of where they needed to be putting their energy, at least from, you know, jailhouse lawyers speaks, looks at this, they're, They're really a, they're an organization that is about promoting human rights. What they do is they write writs for um, other prisoners. They try to help other prisoners uh, work on their cases because it's very hard to get an attorney if you're in, once you've been convicted and are in prison. Um, So they're like basically self-trained collective of paralegals that operate around the U.S. Um, But they really look at things from a human rights lens, but they're also always trying to foster, they're a multiracial group. They're always trying to foster solidarity and try to get prisoners to focus on, um, how to improve their conditions, how to have a better, um, environment inside to the extent that that is possible. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, they're, they're sort of peacemakers and educators and, um, and, and about helping each other. You know, and, um, so they looked at it as a reactionary thing, you know that two gangs would would stab each other all up basically um over basically I don't know the full in and out of it, but it seems like what it did amount to was some sort of you know package or something like that that um was being brought in by corrections officers um but the the point is that what they took from this right, is that they said um they did a really quick analysis they got conference calls together around the US and basically they um they came up initially with like 35 demands and then they boiled it down to the 10 demands that um that they finished with and all of them are really you know i think from a very one is a very Thorough analysis of Clintonian neoliberalism and the impact that that had on the prison system. You know, mm-hmm. I think that when you look at what they're um, asking for the repeal of, um, they're asking for the repeal of the laws that were put in place by um, the Clinton administration under the guidance of um, some really bad criminologists that created things like the super predator narrative. Um, which was basically saying that there was going to become this huge boon of young black men, which meant inherently that the streets would be filled with like savage, irredeemable criminals. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was just like the it's way like, that it was, you know. Yeah, it's this um, this
0: real um, it had this 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 rhetoric and this language has a long history and roots in eugenicism and you e- the you kind of mm-hmm. eugenics movement. Um, as do all prisons in the U.S. Surprise, surprise. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just want to say as I read their demands um, and the specific acts and laws and practices they're challenging, it's, like you said, extremely targeted, this kind of neoliberal oversight that we saw at the turn of the Clinton era with the super predator language. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. And like a good example is like the prison litigation reform act, which a lot of people probably have no idea what that is because it's never impacted them in their life. Right. But mm-hmm. What that is, is like, it made it illegal for prisoners to sue their prisons for human rights issues, yep. you know? And the reason that they were doing that was they, you know, they created this narrative that these jailhouse lawyers, you know, using the same term, right. Um, were were suing their prisons left and right and that it was creating all this you know legal bureaucracy and it was all they were all you know basically that they were all frivolous cases was like the way that it was being framed right as if you know prisoners never have legitimate human rights abuses that they're actually you know mm-hmm. trying to litigate um and so what happened out of that is that like there are supposed to be grievance processes in prison but you know, essentially the way that that usually plays out is you, you file a grievance and then you go before an official within the prison who is going to side with the other officials within the prison. You know, that's just the way that it, it plays out. it, It becomes the, the prisoners in word against the corrections officer or, you know, some prison official and, they're going to side with their their colleague, their union member, you know, all of that. Um and so um not that corrections officers unions are real unions because they're not, but um <laughs> but anyway, um so it's been you know, but then I mean obviously prison slavery comes up again. Um you know the uh You know, the first one, you know, is an immediate improvement to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women. That's fairly broad. But what they're saying is recognize our humanity like that is really throughout this, like what what comes through and and what they see to that. Right. Is that they should have a right to education, that they should have access to drug rehabilitation programs and other like rehabilitation programs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know medical care, things like that um, you know they they want Pell grants to be reinstated, which have basically gone away. There was like some b s under Obama that they came back, but it was only like a few, and you know there there just don't they, almost nobody could get a Pell grant in prison um, and um and then they you know I think an interesting piece in it too you know, obviously they touch on um sentencing, you know there's some very harsh sentencing laws that were put in place in the 90s um that like in california i mean in south carolina for instance say that you have to serve 85 percent of your sentences before you could be eligible for parole now you know if you get a 50-year sentence for something um that's really you know jacked up and they talk about overcharging and they talk about gang enhancements which are different ways that you know they give these really harsh sentences but this was part of their point is that prisoners, if they have no hope, then why would they really care? You know, then, then it just becomes, it, it's a system that they have to survive in the way that they can um, and and sort of figure out how they're going to pass their time. But there's not like an incentive to actually not be violent if you're, you know, if you're just going to be in there forever anyway. Right. Well it's
0: kind of like in mm-hmm. creating intentional apathy. You know what I mean? Like right. Right. you create this lack of interest or enthusiasm in your future and and you suddenly also have someone, you know, who is susceptible to be volatile or or it just breeds violence, right? And it breeds yeah. discontent in a sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean they talked I mean the first interview I did with them afterward, they talked about you know, just the dehumanization of the prison. Um, you know, all of the things that that go into that. You know, and and so they're that's what they're trying to do is get back to. Um, it, it's it's too you know it's really two pronged because in one aim it's aimed at the prisons for sure, but it and that's where they want to direct their their energy and their focus and their struggle, but. At the same time, it's also aimed at the prisoners because they want the prisoners to come together and to to unify around that notion. So like one of the things I think that's really kind of amazing, and this does connect back to George Jackson, connects also to the 2013, um, 2012, 2013 hunger strike in California um, that ended up, you know, achieving some pretty significant changes in their laws around solitary confinement although they still find ways to you know do it and call Mm -hmm. it something else but um but anyway um is this notion of creating basically agreements to end hostilities between these different you know street organizations as they like to call them or you know gangs as people on the outside would typically call them um but um you know getting them all to come to the table and say okay we're not we're going to cool out, we're not gonna have these violent beasts with each other, we're not gonna stab each other and we're going to work together on this because we have to recognize that we're really not each other's enemy. You know, at the Thank end of the day, um, we have these, you know, these different formations for a lot of reasons. I mean, within prison like and they talk about this in the interview. They talk about how if you're coming into prison, which this is also part of the Clinton era, right? As a sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old person you know kid basically right child um then you need protection right like that's the only way that you're going to survive something like that you know and so um that the gangs often become that avenue right of having having people that have your back um and so you know there's a lot of reasons the prisons themselves are what require you know that sort Mm -hmm. of gang because you're you're you have such a small territory within a prison, right, right? That you're trying to, you know, have some some sort of autonomy over, um, and that yeah. requires yeah. That you to work together with others. And
0: you know. I, I think that the um, the the environment itself is conductive to a sort of, as a Westerner would say, tribalism, right? Like it. Yes. it it's a small, confined, hyper-exploitive and violent environment, you're going to be susceptible to division. Um, And I I don't want to switch it up too much, but I want to ask one aspect of the prison strike that a lot of people ask me about all the time is about kind of tactics, right? Like, how do they organize a national prison strike if they're so secluded and they're not allowed Mm -hmm. to necessarily openly talk about those kind of things and what tactics do they actually use to strike like what is at their disposable since they're not literally protesting quote unquote right so um can you speak a little bit about that
1: yeah i mean in terms of how they organize i don't want to speak too much about that um i actually try not to talk to them too much about that either because i don't right um, i don't think you know it, it for security reasons for their own. Um, purposes I think that um, but you know the reality is of course that cell phones get into prison guards bring them into prisons and sell them to prisoners so this is this is a reality like there's a lot of I find again like this is like morbidly funny I think but like this idea that like people are flying drones with packages into prisons and stuff like Mm -hmm. that it's like okay that, that might happen like once in a blue moon but most contraband comes into prisons because guards bring it into prison, you know, and then because the guards are selling it to make exorbitant profits off of it, to to sell, you know, cell phones at, at huge markups and all kinds of other things, right? It's not just it's, just, it's just whatever, like, and which is incredibly exploitive, too. I will get to tactics, but I do want to say this. <laughs> um, it, because prisoners can't make any money, really. A good number of prisons have jobs. Very few prisoners have jobs that pay anything significant or anything substantial. But back to the tactics, so really, um, you know, so so they're able to communicate through, through their networks of people um, within different prisons. You know, I mean, social media is a way that stuff happens to, um, that, that prisoners get out there. Um, there's obviously a lot of repression against that stuff, um, both by social media platforms and by department of corrections basically and even now the fcc is interestingly like in south carolina getting a little more involved the fcc used to be very hands off on this because they didn't want to block cell phones in prisons because if you you really can't do that and if you block it then it means nobody's cell phone works and it means people's cell phone outside the prison doesn't work which is like could be a you know is a violation of their ability to communicate so the FCC has historically always been against that but because of the way that SCDC which is the South Carolina Department of Corrections spun the Lee violence as being caused by cell phones which is absolutely false there's been a more of a crackdown and the federal government has participated more in that in South Carolina but um, to the tactics actually you know there's four basic things. One is work strikes, which is what we saw in 2016. And it it was something that the free Alabama movement really pushed for a couple of years going up to that. There were work strikes that happened in Alabama. I think Georgia too, right? Had some work strikes at one point, you know, so, and Texas Mm -hmm. did at one point. Um, So across the South, like this is more common. It's also important to understand that context because across the South, prisoners are often still on plantations, you know, and so the, the narrative of prison slavery to them is really not metaphorical, you know, for prisoners that are in Angola prison in in Louisiana that are working on four contiguous slave plantations, it's not metaphorical to them, you know, um, and so, um, I think that, um, that's an interesting piece, but I think one of the things that they realized coming out of that strike, um, is that even though that, that is, is poignant, it connects to the public. I think a lot of the public, you know, there's people in the public that always push back against that narrative, but, um, a lot of it still does resonate. The problem with it a little bit is that it's still not all prisoners, not all prisoners have jobs, you know, and so not all prisoners can participate in a work strike. And not all prisoners, if you have a job, you you typically have a little bit more privilege. You're able to move around more. You get mobility through your job. And so a lot of prisoners are not interested in sacrificing their job in order to strike too. So right. I, I anticipate that there will be work stoppages and work strikes. But I think one of the things that they realized after 2016 was that they could broaden it out by diversifying tactics um, and get more prisoners involved that are not in that situation, and so there's multiple ways that they're looking to do that. One of them is sit-ins, which is really interesting. We've seen a few of these this year, but basically the concept is like they're at you know they're at lunch, they're at yard, um, and they just refuse to go back when the corrections officers say, "Okay, it's time to line up." You know, which then, of course, forces the the prison guards to act silently or to wait it out, you know, and just stops the the motion of the prison, stops the operations of the prison mm-hmm. um, and then you know the third one is is boycott, which is something that was tried a little bit um in twenty seventeen in tandem with the millions for prisoners uh human rights march. It's difficult to. You know, I mean, with all of these, it's going to be interesting to see how much information gets out of prisons as this is going on, because the departments of corrections are working overtime to stop that from happening. But Mm -hmm. um, with boycotts, it's really tough, like because I don't I mean, we could try to FOIA like commissary or something like that. I don't know. But um, with boycotts, it's tough to know. But what they're saying is we're not going to spend on commissary. We're not going to spend on your phone system that has these jacked up rates. And so basically, in this one, they're targeting profiteers, but also ways in which the state, um, offsets, you know, gets revenue to offset its expenses in prisons, basically. Um, and so to try to make it more financially unsustainable, um, that's the, the tactic there. And then, um, the fourth one is hunger strike, you know, and, um, one of the prisoners that I interviewed in the piece I just Put out this week um, discussed that you know in twenty sixteen he couldn't participate at all because he was already on lockdown, you know, and um, if you're on lockdown there's not much you can do and i I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about this a little bit, Devin, because I know you've done some some research on it study on it, but you know a hunger strike is the sort of the last thing that you have to to protest mm-hmm. um, and um there's interesting things and weird laws and stuff that is on the books in the u.s about hunger strikes which i think if they were in any country that was not the u.s we would call them severe human rights abuses but oh definitely um you know but um but you know it is still this this last opportunity so i you know i imagine that all of this will be going on and um in in different prisons and different parts of the country um, and some of it we will know about it, and some of it we never will, you know. But
0: right.
1: um, that's I, I, we won't. I shouldn't say never. We'll probably hear about it months afterwards, after the sort of, you know, after the prisons lighten up a little—not lighten up because they never do—but after, you know, they get exhausted from trying to repress it for so long, and you know, try mm. to re- resume normal operations. I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of. Whenever prison strikes and prison uprisings are announced, right? And people on the outside who aren't necessarily super familiar, I think they wait for this super huge, explosive, like post strike mm-hmm. update. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. CNN and tons of outlets are like on the news talking about how dozens of prisons across the country are striking. And that's just not going to be the case, right? What's going to happen is it's going to be suppressed as hard as possible, and mainstream media won't talk about it until enough freelancers and independent journalists and activists push and pressure and force them to. Um, yeah. And just to give you an example, at Stewart Detention Center this past this year, actually, um, on the week of Easter, there were 200 Indian. I'm sorry. I think actually, sh- I've heard I've heard two different stories that they were all Indian, and others have said that they were just all South Asian in general, Um, but nonetheless, over 200 South Asian um, immigrants who were detained at Stewart Detention Center went on hunger strike for the entire Easter weekend, and if you can imagine 200 people in a facility going on hunger strike, and it not making huge mainstream headlines, but then if you compare it, imagine if 200 NFL players <laughs> went on hunger strike, right? Or if 20 NFL players or NBA players or 20 senators went on hunger strike, we wouldn't hear the end of it. They would still be talking right. about it. Um, and, that, and, you know, that information was suppressed super, super, super heavily. And the only reason yeah. that we actually even know about it today, Stuart Detention Center doesn't offer translators. Um, so. So, detainees actually have to coordinate their own translators, which is a violation of human rights. but so a friend yeah. of mine who's a who's a human rights lawyer in Atlanta, she actually happens to speak um, the same language as a lot of the the South Asians who are detained there, and so she was able to communicate with them and speak and learn about it a few weeks later after it happened. But they suppressed that so, so, so hard. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: when this when the prison strike comes, I want to challenge everyone who's listening to this to do your job and kind of be your own autonomous independent journalist and report on it as much as possible and spread the word and you know if your local chapter of your party organization is doing a solidarity event if you are raising money for it if you're doing anything at all on the outside of solidarity write an article about it or you know go to medium.com and write an article about it or make a video about it tweet about it share the word as much as possible Um, And if you have contact to people inside of prison, like you have to, you have to uplift their voice, right? There's no such Uh thing as voiceless people. There's just unheard people and people whose voices are suppressed. And so I just want to challenge people with this specific prison strike. If you are not talking about it, it's going to be hard for these people's labor and their efforts in this strike because they're doing revolutionary organizing it's going to be hard for, for their, their actual, you know, efforts to get out and be and the truth to be shared too. Cause what often happens yeah. is that the uprising will make the news, but it'll only be the side of the guards and you'll have the warden on the local news talking about it. And of course the warden yeah. of a prison isn't going to have anything good to say about a revolutionary prison uprising. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, Totally. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I wanted to say something to, what you just said what what's missing a lot of times is the spectacle right and that we've trained ourselves you know uh, socialists and anarchists and other people you know on the left that that you know boots riley does this good discussion of this um of how like we we've replaced struggling at the point of exploitation with the spectacle you know Mm -hmm. and The prisoners are struggling at the point of exploitation, but there likely will not be a spectacle. Now, there may be, because part of what happens with this is, I mean, today, I got contacted by an advocate who had been contacted by a prisoner who, Mm -hmm. you know, was talking about how um, prisoners in South Carolina were being marched around a pole in their underwear and this was also, mm-hmm. I mean, which was humiliating to all of them and that, you know, they were being marched in front of the women guards as well. And that um, in addition to that, that a lot of the prisoners were Muslim and they weren't allowed to wear, you would know this better than me, Devin. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, they it was basically a violation of their religious practices and because they were just in their underwear,
0: basically. Right. Um, Definitely. So, That's like... that's yeah like a punishable offense i mean you know we're like the religion of modesty essentially so if you can imagine (laughs) right yeah so
1: yeah and um you know so things like that that guards are doing around the country the the problem is i'm not worried about the prisoners in this scenario honestly i'm worried more so about what these corrections officers are going to do
0: or provoke.
1: Mm -hmm. Because let's be clear, like, corrections officers, unions around the country have been talking about this for months. They're very aware of it. They're very concerned about it. And, you know, they're planning repression. And when prisoners are protesting against the inhumanity of the system, and they're repressed further, rather than allowing them to protest, that's where you could have a really potentially volatile situation. And um, so, you know, in 2016, this happened in a couple of places. It happened in Florida and it happened in Kinross in, in Michigan, most notably, where basically at Kinross, they were doing a sit-in out in the yard and it was completely peaceful. And basically they brought in the, the CERT team, which is like a SWAT team for prison, basically. And you know, started gassing them and, you know, all kinds of stuff, brutalizing them. And, you know, that night the prisoners basically did a ton of property damage to a wing of the prison. And that one made the news in multiple scenarios because it was so large of a, of a, of a rebellion, basically that, um, nobody was killed in it, but, um, thankfully, you know, but Mm -hmm. it was such a large rebellion that, um, that basically it couldn't be ignored. You know, they tried to minimize it in the media at first, but reports kept getting out. And, um, you know, eventually they they couldn't, um, they couldn't just continue to lie about it completely. Right. Because it was too, you know, there were pictures that would get out, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's the, you know, that's the nature of the prisons is that they'll try to, they'll try to repress and control the narrative that no repression is going on, nor was there any you know, nor was there any Mm -hmm. strike. And so, you know, when it gets out, it gets out, like you say, from prisoners to family members and things like that. Um, You know, and I, and I agree the other thing that you said that I really wanted to touch on that was also reiterated by, um, you know, one of the representatives from jailhouse lawyers speak is this notion of families, you know, and and I, and I also got into some arguments with some former prisoners online too, you know, and it's like they were saying something about like they need to call it off, you know, and, and I just like, I mean, it, it was sort of laughable, you know, because it was like, look, I don't know who you think has the power to call something like this off once it's called, but that person doesn't exist, right? Like right. once it is in motion, it is in motion. There's nothing that could be done once you know, once the prisoners have decided and started organizing it, it's out and it's in prisons around the country. And there's nobody who could pull that back if they wanted to, you know? So like that, just that, even that notion that that could happen is, is, is like silly. And, um and it was just a very liberal, you know, it was like he was concerned about the repression that's going to happen to prisoners. And I said, well, then you need to call your, you know, like what, what the, prisoners are saying is, hey, let your let your local officials, let your congressmen, let your senators, let your state representatives know that this is happening because they want, from their perspective, which I understand, you know, I, I don't like to engage with the bourgeois like, you know, political system. But their point is this, is that there are committees that control how prisons operate or that oversee the directors of these departments of corrections and things like that. You know, and so, you know, if they're, if, if they complete ignorance at a, at a politician level, at a state representative or, you know, state senator level or higher, you know, then, then they will, you know, I mean, nobody, nobody in political life was talking about the 2016 prison strike, even though it was happening in the middle of a presidential election, you know, Um, so they'll definitely try to ignore it unless people, um, get that in front of them. So yeah, I mean, get it out to the media, share those stories that come out from inside, um, get it out, you know, I mean, the, the reality is that the people who operate the prisons are are people too. And we can call them up too, if we find out that something's going on in the prison, you know, and so
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that's one of the tactics that people use on the outside, they call them phone zaps, you know, which is basically just this idea that, if we find out some mistreatment is going on by the guards, we're going to call all the numbers within that prison to to let them know that to stop it and that we stand in solidarity with the prisoners and to call the people within the state Department of Corrections, you know, and tell them the same thing. Um, and honestly, you know, that that has some effectiveness. I've I've seen instances where, for instance, if a specific prisoner is getting you know really violated in an awful way um, all their stuff's getting stolen, they're stolen in solitary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can get prisoners their things back. Like we've, we've had three or four examples of this, just this year that I've been involved in, um, Kevin Rashid Johnson, um, my, one of my colleagues at Beyond Prison, her, one of her sons, um, you know, so it, it, it is possible, like, You know the worst thing you can do is completely disengage even if even you know if a prison if a tactic is coming up you know it's okay to ask people about whether it makes sense because it is a it's a complex thing always but um you know there is a lot that we can do to offer solidarity and you know the other thing i wanted to highlight is you know teach-ins and things like that i know that you're doing one dev and Mm -hmm. um you know i i did one this past well last weekend um and then I sent some materials to some other organizers to do another one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for people that, that, you know, are listening to this or reading up on it and are becoming knowledgeable about it, the truth is there's a lot of people who don't know anything about it at all. Right. And so that opportunity, but care, you know, that, that, yeah. that understand, I mean, you read those demands and they're not asking for anything that even to some of the more, you know, skeptical i think you know the the demands are very reasonable is what i would say you know what i mean they're things that oh, we should definitely. all be fighting definitely. for all of the time we we should ask for much more than that but like that's they're looking at how do we get to this baseline of some things that we can get in place so that you know we can restore some hope we can restore some programs we can restore some humanity um, to give us some room to breathe is really the way that they're looking at, um, this Mm -hmm. particular strike, you know, um, and they're they're trying to, they're trying to prevent more violence like what happened at Lee. you know, they're trying to get prisoners to get on that same page with one another so that there's not as much inmate on inmate violence, which I think mm -hmm. is a very revolutionary thing to do, you know, so.
0: Definitely. I mean, it's similar to what we see, In places like Chicago or parts of Atlanta, um, you know, or Compton, Oakland, all these, all these cities that are used to signify "quote unquote" black on black and intercommunity crime and violence, Um, but it's the it's the it's the product of, of their environment and their socioeconomic positioning and where they've been placed, and what we see in the prison with how they're using this this strike to say, listen. We understand that in order for these these violent environments and our interpersonal and intercommunal uh, violence to lessen and to go away, we have to deconstruct this entire system, right? We have to deconstruct the entire structure that we're within. So I think it's very, that parallel there is very important and powerful. And I hope people listening don't miss that. Um, and I just, I guess what we can end on, I really wanna just tell people, I want to not be preachy here, but I want to say, like, please, please, please get involved. It's as simple as, like, doing a documentary screening, doing um, a good, you know, someone who I really enjoy, a good friend of mine, Ricky, she's doing, in honor of the of Black August and of the August 21st strike, she's doing a reading club about um, where they're reading Angela Davis's Our Prisons yep. Obsolete, um, join a pen pal group and write to incarcerated people, Whatever city you live in, I guarantee you there's some organization that's doing abolitionist or even like reformist, whatever work, but just some organization or group that's working with incarcerated people in whatever way or capacity you can, please get involved. If you want to reach out to me specifically, I can always send you the names of people who are incarcerated who need money on their books. If you want to donate financially to people, that's a great way to help people. So I just want to leave with that and let people know who's listening. I know that when we tackle large structures, it, it's easy to feel helpless and like you don't know how to help. I think that a lot of, for example, the the detained families and children being held in cages conversation is something, things like that, that seem so huge and big that we can't help. Um, we tend to just give up on because it seems impossible and we get very nihilistic about it, but there are many ways you can help these huge structures be dismantled and you can make small but meaningful impacts on it um yeah absolutely so that's my rant
1: (laughs) no i I appreciate that i you made me think of a couple other things i do want to shout out which is one Mm -hmm. um that you know these disorganized from the beginning the strike has included um all people that are detained you know within the u.s and so um you know they they extended solidarity out, um, in crafting these demands to ensure that the language will be inclusive of people who are in immigration, immigrant yep. detention, um, and, and juvenile detention, you know, and then beyond that, also they did at, um, you know, a couple months ago, they issued a statement of solidarity with, um, people who are in ICE detention and people who were struggling um, against that system too. So, you know, that's one of the things I think that I take away that I think is so beautiful about, um, these organizers inside is that, um, you know, they're conscious about, um, even though most of them are men, right? they they, they also talk about women's prisons. They're also opening this up for women to organize and participate in. Um, they're thinking about immigrants so and and they're recognizing that these things are all interconnected, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's a lesson I think that a lot of us sometimes within. And I and I I want to say also that there's so many organizations. We're almost at. I think I saw today that it's up to 185 organizations that are um, in solidarity and chapters yep. and and things like that, groups. And so um, that's amazing. You know, we didn't. That wasn't the case in 2016. It was still kind of this newer notion of organizing outside solidarity for a US prison strike. Um and so um I and the, and those groups span every tendency, you know, that is out there. Um, you know, including like some fairly liberal, you know, kind of mainline organizations, honestly. But um that's great because they're they're showing up for this struggle that has specific demands of prisoner led. Um and I think that, um, it, you know, being involved in something like this, getting involved and in figuring out ways to plug in and support and connecting with other groups that are organizing it around it as well. A lot of people are doing like noise demonstrations where, you know, four or five different groups in an area are coming together to do a noise demonstration outside of a jail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those things bring people together. And I think a lot of times we can be. Um, we, we have our different tendencies. We have our different political ideologies or, um, you know, sciences or beliefs. But I think that, um, you know, it's important that we're able to galvanize and and work together in solidarity to support these things. And, and we follow the prisoner's lead on that, right? Because that's what they're doing. And they have, they're fighting across differences that are way more diverse than, than what we are right now, you know? Mm, so,
0: yeah, Definitely. Well, I think with that, um, we're gonna have to close out this episode. Jay, it's always great talking with you, comrade. We always I know the people listening think that we just like linked up for the podcast, but we actually talk all the time and have these lengthy <laughs> discussions about these topics like all the time. So yeah, it's always great to
1: talk I was, with you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you too, Dev. All right. Peace. All right.